welcome to another episode of Green Minds. This week we've got with us Joy Beckerman. She's an industrial hemp activist. She's had over a quarter of a century in the industrial hemp field, an owner in a company called Hemp Ace International. She was owner of the first hemp store in New York, and she's on the board of directors for Normal. This woman has been everywhere, and she's got a real why behind her cause. Joy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So much, Patrick. Excellent work. I would love if you could just talk about your history and how you came up to deciding on industrial hemp in particular. I was turned on to industrial hemp at a Grateful Dead show in Massachusetts in the spring of 1990. I received a flyer at that dead show. When I received this flyer, I reacted to it. It affected me on a cellular level. And that is because I had a very deep sense of planetary healing. So when I discovered this information and saw that we had actually a path to a solution, but that solution had been criminalized, that really changed me dramatically. I went on then to open up the first hemp store in the state of New York in 1996. But then the inaugural Vermont Hemp Bill passed. And Vermont, very close to New York State and the activist world being very close, a small group, I was then appointed to serve as secretary of the Vermont Hemp Council, which was statutorily mandated within that bill. And then when my two sons, who are now 23 and 25, got a little older, we relocated to Seattle, Washington, where I began the dual career in industrial hemp and in compliance and complex civil litigation. Uh, worked on very large cases, Enron, Exxon Valdez, against those corporations, and um, served as a lead paralegal to many multi-million dollar lawsuits, including the largest uh, securities municipal fraud litigation in the history of Washington state. Then we legalized actually medical cannabis in 1998 in Washington, but adult use came along by initiative of the people in 2012, at which time both of my boys had graduated from high school or in college. So I then formed Hemp Ace International, which is a consulting and legal support. Also formed, I'm the founding president of the Washington Hemp Industries Association. Uh, and the Hemp Industries Association was formed in 1994 uh, as just as normal, the national organization for the reform of marijuana laws was formed in 1970. So I have leadership positions in both of those uh, organizations. It took us four more years in the state of Washington to legalize the cultivation of industrial hemp. A lot of folks think that when we legalized medical or adult use cannabis that we you know, legalized industrial hemp. In fact, we didn't. Just this past June, we planted the first legal 115 acres of industrial hemp in the state of Washington in some 80 years. We continue to work on those bills. We passed passed an industrial hemp bill in the March of 2016, but it took a year to draft the rules to regulations to implement the law. And that's sort of what we're seeing coming into the present day is, are you familiar, Patrick, with the Farm Bill or the Agricultural Act of 2014 that we call the Farm Bill on a federal level? I would love if you could explain what the Farm Bill was. Yay, great. Thank you so much, sweetie. Every five years, they pass what's called an agricultural act. They call it the Farm Bill for short. In 2014, the Agricultural Act passed with a little amendment called Section 7606, which has become a noun, a verb, an adjective, 7606. Uh, and it's called the legitimacy of industrial hemp research. Well, this is groundbreaking. In this little one and a half page amendment in the Farm Bill, which Obama signed into law in February of 2014, it did some really big things. 
One is that it defined industrial hemp for the first time in U.S. history and distinguished it from marijuana. And the other is that it defines something called an agricultural pilot program. And an agricultural pilot program is a program to study the growth cultivation and marketing of industrial hemp, meaning your state has to have already passed its own law on a state level. Your state departments of ag and your institutions of higher learning, that those institutions of higher learning and those state departments of ag move forward with these agricultural pilot programs. 33 states have passed some form of industrial hemp legislation, but only 15 or so have passed legislation in compliance with an agricultural research pilot program from the feds. There are research requirements, research goals associated with your license. Joy, if I could get a high-level overview for what the difference is between industrial hemp versus marijuana. So there are these genetic differences between industrial hemp and medical use cannabis and marijuana. THC being the intoxicating or euphoric cannabinoid, also with many, many health benefits. We have the oil steven fiber crop, commonly known as industrial hemp. It is a low resin agricultural crop. We generally plant them from seed every year, industrial hemp, and it is generally planted with mechanical equipment and harvested with mechanical equipment when we talk about large-scale or commercial agriculture. Uh, also paper, textiles, biocomposites, uh, biofuel, nanotechnology, building materials. Industrial hemp serves all of those industries. And what we have for marijuana or medical adult use sacramental cannabis is in, an intoxicating or euphoric or medical benefits, or even the ability to get in touch with our spiritual side and higher selves. So the legalized adult use and medical cannabis markets are getting up and running very quickly because, again, you grow it, you cure it, you package it, you consume it, as opposed to industrial hemp where we have all of those infrastructure needs. Now, those infrastructure needs, how they may be viewed as challenging or challenges, the reality is that they're all opportunities for economic stimulation. They're all opportunities for job growth. For the entrepreneurs and business owners out there, what are the main reasons why they should think of integrating industrial hemp into their products? Well, the largest benefits, if they want to participate in the conscious consumer, if they want to participate in leading the way towards delivering an optimal product with quality, performance, longevity, and value to the end consumer. Now, we sort of need to sort of address different industries at different times in order to give you some good examples. And I think food is a great one. Hemp is a food, the superfood that requires a cave. The industrial hemp seed is the highest form of digestible protein in the entire planet animal kingdom, more so than soy, than milk, than beef, than chicken. And that's because of the unique amino acid profile of industrial hemp. It has all of the amino acids. It just lacks a little bit of lysine to make it a complete profile. And we can get lysine in other food sources. On top of it, it's the perfect ratio of omegas, threes, and six. And we're talking about polyunsaturated essential fatty acids, or EFAs. They're essential because our bodies require them to function. Brain functioning, body systems, a number of systems within the human body that require these essential fatty acids, and we don't make them ourselves. We have to get them from food. So for industrial hemp seed to have the perfect ratio of omegas, threes, and six, and to take it one step further for the health nerds who might be listening out there, also two very difficult to come by long chain 
polyunsaturated EFAs, which are GLA, uh, gamma linoleic acid, and SDA, steradonic acid. We generally have to go into the fish kingdom and the meat kingdom in order to obtain those long chain EFAs, yet there they are abundantly available to us in this vegetarian form and this renewable resource of industrial hemp. When we talk just about the hemp seed for human or animal nutrition, side note, lots of long policy issues around hemp as animal feed, and we won't have time to address that here. So keeping it to human, my goodness, imagine adding hemp seed to any food. And by that, I mean, not only can you just buy your whole hemp seeds and add it to French toast, salad, casserole, ice cream, yogurt, smoothie, whatever you want. That's just one small example of how a company could benefit from adding hemp to their product. And we're just making the world a better place when, when we do that. Wow, so it's a superfood. You can use it to make t-shirts, paper products, many products in other industries. Entrepreneurs can benefit from it and pour it into your cereal. You can eat it in your wrap. It sounds like hemp is a great way to find more renewable resources to be able to put into your products and into your body. It's gonna help the world last longer in a healthier way, as well as helping your own body out. Let's go from one extreme to the other, and now let's discuss nanotechnology for a minute. So we've talked about a base survival need of food, and now we'll go into the future, man. So nanotechnology, what is it really? Well, let's discuss what, a, what the nanoscale is. A nanometer is one billionth of a meter. So it is so very, very small. And understand what I'm about to tell you. We didn't have the technology 25 years ago to really comprehend world's most valuable biocellulose or nanocellulose of industrial hemp is. And what we have come to discover as technology has been invented on the nano scale is that industrial hemp cellulose is second only to carbon nanotubes and graphite whiskers in terms of strength and surface area. Keep in mind that carbon nanotubes and graphite whiskers are very cost prohibitive, even just for R&D purposes, to say nothing of delivering a product that, that could be affordable to mere mortals like you and I on the regular commercial market. So to be able to blow past that and use a plant for these R&D purposes, we can do almost anything that we can do with carbon nanotubes and graphite whiskers with industrial hemp. And we're talking energy storage and supercapacitors. We're talking moldable, bendable computers. I mean, this is really amazing stuff, what we have discovered. Go ahead. So how do tinkers like me or other engineers, people who are listening to this and want to start playing in the sandbox of industrial hemp biotechnology. What are the resources that are out there right now that people can start turning to, to integrating that into their projects? Ah, this is a great question, and I'd love to say, my book is already out, uh, but Dave Sieber, who created the first, uh, he's a, basically a founder of the industrial hemp movement, a grandfather of the movement, he created the first medium density fiber board um, with industrial hemp at Washington State University uh, in the early 90s. He and I are writing, and he's a, a, a true scientist, he and I are writing a book right now that addresses all of these different industries and gives major technical um, and other resources resources in divided up. So it will actually be a manual for folks. But in the meantime, uh, folks should feel free to get on Google Scholar. I don't suggest Google very often for industrial hemp. There's so much misinformation and disinformation and folks copying and repeating and regurgitating the bad information out there. And, and so it, what sucks is that then folks who are even critical thinkers are like, well, I got, you know, seven answers on this hemp Google search that was all the same. So it must be right. 
guidance. Now, oftentimes, it's actually that the seven people file saved as and regurgitated the bad information, so it keeps coming up. So Google Scholar is always going to be a little more accurate for industrial hemp or cannabis in general because um, it is you know peer reviewed and there's more research that's going into it. So check out Google Scholar for now, absolutely. So Andrea Herman, who is the global first lady of industrial hemp, a dear friend of mine, someone I work very close with, she actually one of her many many roles um, is that she teaches the world's first course on industrial hemp through Oregon State University. She's an American gal living in Manitoba, Canada. She's been there since 2001. Uh, and so it's through the eCampus. And I'm, I'm very honored to teach the uh, current legislative portion of that, uh, of that course as Dave Sieber teaches the industrial oil application of that course. But if she has a nanotechnology piece um, which is taught by Professor John Simons of Industrial Hemp. That's another great resource. And the name of that course is Industrial Hemp WSE266. And that stands for Wood Science Engineer 266. Anyone can take it anywhere in the world. I really strongly um, suggest that for, for uh, nanotechnology. And you would get your toes into absolutely every aspect of industrial hemp through Andrea's course at Oregon State University, all of the different aspects, paper, textiles, nutrition, biocomposites, biofuel, the whole darn bit. So that's another great way. Anywhere in the world you can get educated on not just where the industrial hemp industry is currently at, but where it's going. You can start to hear from the experts, the people who've been in the industry for decades now. People are putting it out there, making the information available so that we can start defeating this misinformation that is circulating, just like Joy's been saying. Exactly. Ethics, standards, accuracy. This is not a magic plant that, you know, we plant this magic seed and magic comes out of the ground. There's no magic. There's science, there's facts, there's accuracy, and this is this is a developed agricultural crop all over the world. We're, we're behind now. So we, we're plugging into systems that are well already created. And, and when we talk about education, Patrick, thank you so much for really bringing that home because folks ask me all the time, Joy, how can I get into hemp? And, you know, if they were saying, hey, I want to be a car mechanic, how do I do that? I'd say, sheesh, you better get yourself to trade school. Gee, I want to be, I want to be a lawyer. How can I do that? Well, you're going to want to go to law school. I want to get into hemp, Joy. How can I do that? You need education like any other industry and trade. And that is a, a really great way to do it. I, I wanted to just quickly also address, because it's this issue of taxonomy, and I won't drag it out too much, but I want, it's very important for folks to understand that cannabis, because you, you corrected yourself, brother, and, and you didn't need to accept that. You might be in a room of people that would require you to, A, either because they're ignorant, and I don't mean that in a judgmental way, A, either because they're not aware of what you're talking about, I don't like to use the word ignorant, I guess, and the other is because maybe they have an opinion on the word marijuana, which is just, if that is ignorant in my, in my view, but the reality is that the, it's the family, the plant family, Cannabaceae, that the plant genus cannabis is underneath and cannabaceae doesn't just have the plant genus cannabis it has a couple of other plant genuses too hops and cannabis both come from cannabaceae and industrial hemp and marijuana both come down underneath cannabis so for the industrial hemp intellectuals in the room and you're talking to one right now when folks want to use the word cannabis 
to distinguish between industrial hemp and marijuana, it's like nails on a chalkboard to the hemp intellectual because they're both cannabis. So when you say hemp and cannabis, the reality is you're saying hemp and hemp or cannabis and cannabis because hemp is cannabis. But we have to have a way of speaking with each other, right? And we have to have a dictionary that we can agree on to understand what we're talking about. And that's why I choose hemp and marijuana. I love the word marijuana. I embrace the word marijuana. And there's no way I'm going to let the special interests of the 1930s deprive me of my rights. I'm glad you're making this a clear issue. Your opinion is that marijuana should still be used to refer to the flowering plant? Yes, I mean, it's important to know that industrial hemp also is flowering, and they both are male and female and hermaphrodite and all of that. So what we would say is medical or adult use cannabis. Now, I don't like to use the word should. People should do what makes them feel comfortable, right? But let's examine the word marijuana for a moment, because Dr. Ethan Rousseau, a wonderful man, he lives in my community, he's a friend. We have a fun time together. I adore him, but we respectfully disagree over this issue. But understand, normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Law, like, believe me, it's not going to be Norkel anytime soon. We're totally okay with marijuana. But if we can discuss this word for a moment, understand the etymology of that word. It is based in agriculture as a seven-leaf plant. It is a sacred term that has been used in a sacred manner in Spanish-speaking countries for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It is not our job to insult our Spanish-speaking brothers and sisters who respect this word and use this word respectfully to all of a sudden make this ridiculous, hippie, politically correct decision. And by the way, I sit here with dreadlocks, you know, um, in my third set as we speak. I'm a quintessential hippie, but I don't need this. I don't think the movement needs this kind of crap. Not only did they prey on our lack of evolved sense of unity, but they also preyed on our root chakra where we were particularly vulnerable. Andrew Mellon was Secretary of the Treasury, and in 1930, he appointed Henry Anslinger, who was at that point his nephew-in-law to be, to rule over the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, the FBN, which we know today as the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. And that's how the DEA came about. It was originally the FBN. And Henry Anslinger, along with many other um, industrialists, went on these yellow journalism, social engineering campaigns to poison Americans against marijuana, against industrial hemp. Frankly, I think that marijuana took the fall for the competition that was industrial hemp as patents were being gained and procured. The cotton gin was invented in the late 1800s and that created a special interest fiber wars in the South. We had a, certainly a lot going on with pharmaceuticals and everyone should check out cannabismuseum.com for information about that. And then we have the movie Reefer Madness. And what we certainly got from the movie Reefer Madness, which some folks may look at as a comedy, the reality is it's a tragedy. And it's a tragedy that we are still dealing with and feeling the effects of and re-engineering and re-educating today. And that was, hey, you smoke marijuana? That black, that Negro jazz singer smokes marijuana. And the next thing you know, he's going to think he's as good as a white man. And he's going to have sex with your white wife. And not only that, your white wife is going to want to have sex with that Negro jazz singer. So they really were getting us in our racism, in our root chakra. They were really messing with our minds. They did that so effectively over the course of seven years that by the time 1937 Marijuana Tax Act came around, and by the way, those were just three hearings, transcripts of which are available in our national archives. Those hearings took place after regular hours, without totally due process. Folks didn't know that they were going on. 
And then it was passed. Henry Anslinger presided over those hearings. So the executive director of the FBN was presiding over these Senate hearings. And the first transcript is quite fascinating. You have Dr. Bob Woodward of the American Medical Association, how he even found out about this hearing, who knows? And now that I do public testimony, believe me, when you find out about something at the last minute, you're like running to the committee room so that you can testify and get your comments on the record. So you can almost feel the, the tension as he runs into this room and he doesn't realize this Dr. Bob Woodward at this very first hearing for the Marijuana Tax Act in DC that he's just a teeny tiny cog in a great big wheel that's about to just mow right over him. He has no idea. So you can see throughout the transcript where he's saying, I don't understand why we're using the term marijuana in these formal proceedings. Please, I, I respectfully request that we use the term cannabis in these formal proceedings. Then he, then he pops up again. It's like, I'm sorry, I'm unaware of the street scourge that is marijuana. We're not hearing of this. But what I can tell you is that we definitely need to be able to continue to provide our patients with cannabis. And by the way, may I just ask one more time if we could call it cannabis in this formal hearing. And they ignore him. They never use the word cannabis. They intentionally use marijuana. I mean, this is like really intense stuff. So when we understand the etymology of the word marijuana, when we understand that it was some fat white guys with big money who wanted to use this term nefariously to meet their goals and their needs, and when we understand that we are offending here in 2017 our Spanish-speaking brothers and sisters by a bunch of people in America all of a sudden deeming the ancient sacred word marijuana to be a bad negative word, it is offensive to our Spanish-speaking brothers and sisters. And it's offensive to me as a citizen that we would go and allow these special interests that went on for seven years or whatever and defined the term marijuana in the Marijuana Tax Act. The legal term for cannabis in Jamaica is ganja. And in 2015, they legalized sacramental ganja, medical ganja, and industrial hemp. So these are the words that were defined. And keep in mind that in the Controlled Substances Act of 1970, which flat out criminalized, the Marijuana Tax Act merely taxed industrial hemp out of existence. But in 1970, the Nixon administration straight up criminalized industrial hemp and marijuana. But the definition of marijuana that is in the Controlled Substances Act of 1970, everyone should take note, is word for word the same definition from the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. So today, we live with this 80-year-old, outdated, unscientific definition of cannabis in the form of marijuana. To keep it clear, hemp is cannabis. To me, it doesn't make sense, and I'm perfectly comfortable with the word marijuana, and it's actually gotten to the point where I feel like I want to reclaim the word marijuana on behalf of all of us, so I might use it a little extra, even. So that's how I like to do it. <laughs> Yeah, I really like how you said before we can actually have a conversation, we need to make sure that we're all speaking from the same dictionary. I myself definitely need to be more conscious of the words that I speak, but also welcoming of other people and understand where they're coming from. You right now are actually in Kentucky to bring your knowledge to a couple different groups, right? Yeah. Thank you so much. So the Hemp Industries Association, it's the 24th annual conference. As I mentioned before, the Hemp Industries Association is really, it's our nation's brain trust. It was founded in 19... 
94, the highest standards of accuracy and ethics in developing the industrial hemp industries in America. And so we'll have our 24th annual conference here, and I'll be speaking on a policy panel. And also tomorrow, I will be conducting a hempcrete workshop. I'm very blessed to be able to work with Hemp Technologies, and they are the builders of the first permanent hempcrete homes in America. We built the first home for the mayor of Asheville, North Carolina, and he still lives in that beautiful home on the side of a mountain. And so I will be conducting a hempcrete workshop here in Lexington. And hempcrete is a mold, rot, fire, and pest-resistant carbon sequestering insulation uh, construction infill. It lasts hundreds and hundreds of years, sometimes over a thousand years. And without any heating or cooling system in a 12 to 18 inch thick wall, depending on the extremity of your climate where you are, your hempcrete home would stay at an interior temperature of 60 degrees year round without any heating or cooling system. It really is the ultimate in indoor air quality and in performance for construction infill. Thank you for that. I'm going to go ahead and shift the conversation over to the lightning round. Where do you think the first place people are going to start seeing industrial hemp in their daily lives? Food. What is a purchase that any American could make under $50 that would either get a hemp product in their possession or support the cause? Food, twine, paper, clothing. Today in the mail, I got a 420-foot roll of hemp wick with my smoking. I got to be a little bit more conscious of the, the carcinogens that are going in with the butane. I know it's a very small amount, but I like to have the hemp wick because it's such an inexpensive purchase. It just removes the risk from that source. Sorry. Side note there on my end. Oh, no, please. I love that. And then you got the total hippie who I consume, you know, copious amounts of cannabis all day and all night, but I've never used the hemp wick. And yet I use hemp twine for many, many other things. So it's funny. I love that you use it for that. So what is the best media, social news or otherwise, for people to get more involved I think joining the Hemp Industries Association, even if it's just as a supporting member, which is $50 a year, the misinformation and the disinformation is huge. So I would say to join the Hemp Industries Association, then you're getting your newsletters, you're getting all of that, you're building your network, you're getting access to accurate, vetted information. This is not a brand new organization and hemp associations and organizations are popping up on the daily, brother. And they all sound familiar in name. So hemp industries, that's plural, association, dhia.org, the HIA. So otherwise, I would also say, and this is free, and that would be Vote Hemp, V-O-T-E-H-E-M-P. So votehemp.com is another great organization to get plugged into. It's actually the lobbying arm of the HIA, and Vote Hemp is free. That's what I would say. I'd love to be able to say social media, but the reality is whatever you do, don't get your hemp information from social media. <laughs> it's definitely not a message young people are going to be willing to hear, but I'm glad that it's coming from someone as reputable as you. Gives a little bit more backing to the fact that while social media empowers us to do a lot of things, there are limits to it in its current form and we need to supplement it with external forms of information. We do. And I just want to quickly just, just elaborate by saying there are so many complexities. Now, it's not rocket science. I don't want to make it sound like you need to have some type of a college degree to get involved with industrial hemp because you absolutely don't. 
but there are complexities and there is a bizarre urge to oversimplify industrial hemp. And this is a mistake. This is a misguided mistake that leads to million dollar problems that leads to people investing or going forth on ideas that are not based in reality that will not achieve any type of success. And so and we reduce everything in social media. So I get folks and I love them. They're wanting to connect. They're wanting to be excited about hemp. And, you, and it's an interesting dichotomy to walk where you want to encourage all of that enthusiasm while also steer people toward facts. So folks will tag me, for example, for a meme. It's about hemp. And it'll say, here's a perfect example of one. All hemp plastic is biodegradable. I mean, that's a ridiculous, untrue statement. Of course, that's not true. So we have to be critical thinkers and going, well, how processed is this hemp? Is it all biodegradable? Absolutely not. You can take the most toxic stuff and put some hemp herd in it to call it a hemp biocomposite. And you wouldn't be lying. You've added hemp to it. It's now a hemp biocomposite. And yay, we can also say, well, hey, it's better that they put hemp in there than some other toxic thing. But is it biodegradable? No. Or here's another meme that's very, and this is just what's going around in social media, this type of simplification or oversimplification. I, I see this one all the time. Hemp produces four times more paper than trees per acre. It's not that that's untrue statement. It's just an unqualified, only half the fact statement. That statement would be fully true if it said another sentence or finished the sentence by saying over a 20 year period, because the research that that factoid comes out of was actually USDA research from 1916. And if we look at uh, Bulletin 404, and anyone can Google it, by the way, hempology.org, H-E-M-P, O-L-O-G-Y, hempology.org. John Dvorak, an amazing historian, also teaches the history part of Andrea's course in OSU. Fantastic site. Um, so in any event, you Google USDA Bulletin 404, and we get researcher Leister's Dewey's research where he grew acres of industrial hemp in Washington, D.C. area. Super side note, part of the Pentagon is built on a corner of Leister Dewey's USDA research hemp field. Oh, yes, it is. But in that research, he does discover over a 20-year period, four times more paper could be produced from hemp than trees. Why is that? Because it takes 20 years, Patrick, for a tree, a paper tree to grow. A paper tree doesn't grow in a year. Now, we might be able to harvest two crops of hemp in that same acre in a year. And we're going to keep reharvesting those crops for a 20-year period while the acre of trees takes the 20 years next to it to grow. And at the end of those 20 years, we'll be, we would be able to produce four times more paper if we added it all up. If you want to follow the experts, there are industrial hemp experts that are on social media, thank God, and they're incredible. But without naming those few, I would say, yep, stay away from social media. We're not there just yet. <laughs> I love that your tandems always go into a little bit of a history lesson. Each time you give me something new, like that plug for hempology.org, definitely appreciate it. I went and looked it up. Joy's plugging good information. She's supporting her facts with resources. Listen to what this woman is saying and become educated. <laughs> little, little bit of a tangent there for the lightning round, but it is totally okay because all of that information is going to stay in this because there was so much quality in it. Back, back to the conversation. Which state do you think has the best policy for industrial hemp? I'm going to go with Kentucky right now. 
Kentucky really, I think, leads the way. They were the very first to take advantage of the Farm Bill. And by the way, they're rivaling Colorado. The reason why I'm going with Kentucky over Colorado, and Colorado is kicking ass and taking names, and I love Colorado. Thank you, Colorado. Having said that, they don't quite yet have a research component to their commercial or their general licensing for industrial hemp. And we really do need that. A lot of folks are like, research, me search. We know everything we need to know about industrial hemp. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Canada has been doing intense research since 1998, and they don't know anything about fiber practically. They've been just doing food processing because the infrastructure, those tens of millions of dollars of processing that I told you about, the infrastructure for food already existed in Canada, and it was less expensive than processing fiber, so they built on that. But there's soil and climate and photo period and cultivars and regions and all of this research that needs to take place. So Kentucky is allowing the traditional uses for industrial hemp, but Kentucky is also allowing the extraction of the plant material, as you say, the flowering, because we have flowers. In fact, the DEA considers the non-exempt parts of industrial hemp to be what they call the flowering tops, leaves, and resin. And they fight with Kentucky. And Kentucky is fighting right back and demanding justice, because Kentucky is actually half responsible for the laws that we have. And so in any event, Kentucky allows for the extraction of phytocannabinoids, so cannabidiol, which generates revenue to develop these more expensive infrastructures, and they have a very encouraging program here. And also, Colorado is, you know, is amazing, but not with, the, they don't have the research. Absolutely. I'm sure a lot of the work that Kentucky's been able to do would not have been possible without the bricks that Colorado's been laying down to make it all possible. Last question for you. What is the coolest hemp product that you've seen on the market? Of dictionaries, right? So my dictionary cool might be different because maybe I'm a little bit nerdy. So I'm going to just answer, answer that in a couple of different ways. One, I'm going to say that to me, other than food, the cool product and why I'm so obsessed with it is hempcrete. To understand that over 50% of our landfill waste every year is construction waste. We are building off-gassing, toxic, temporary homes and structures for people that don't last. They end up in the landfill. So when we talk about a carbon sequester, long-lasting, optimal performing, optimal indoor air quality construction infill to replace these toxic off-gassing temporary building materials. To me, that's major. To me, that's cool because I'm that much of a nerd. Now, let's get into like maybe real cool, like interesting, groovy, unique, and innovative type of thing because hempcrete is thousands of years old. Ain't nothing innovative going on between hemp and lime and water. They've been doing it for thousands of years. But hemp biocomposites, man. And the reality is that Henry Ford already built an entire car out of hemp biomass um, composite, hemp, flax, spruce, wheat, and jute. Today, you can get hemp biocomposite, and this is Kentucky-grown hemp, which is sent to North Dakota that they mix with North Dakota-grown corn, and they turn it into a biocomposite bio filament for 3D printers and Green Spring Technology is doing ink injection mold and 3D printing pens that you can engrave your name in and little name plates for your business cards. And there's these great hemp biocomposite suitcases, that, uh, briefcases that Andrea sells and, and those come out of Europe. The cool stuff for me is the biocomposite stuff. I just want to see, I want to see hemp plastic everywhere and it's popping up. I mean, the BMW 3 and 5 series door liners are made out of 
of industrial hemp. And so anything that lessens the weight of the car actually reduces the CO2 emission. They discovered that by putting hemp biocomposite in those door liners, it was reducing the weight of the car by five kilograms. And that actually had a significant effect on CO2 emissions. So anyway, we're seeing it all over, but that the cool stuff in terms of new and innovative and groovy for me is any biocomposite that is incorporating industrial hemp. Joy, that's why I've loved having you here on the show is you're really conscious of the fact that everybody's definitions are their own. How you think of things is not necessarily how other people think of them, but you also do a very good job of explaining it down to other people's terms so that everybody can start to be more educated on the conversation. I have never been happier to be intellectually and lexicographically stomped into the ground. It has seriously been a pleasure to have you on the show. Do you have any last notes for the audience before you leave? And after that, what is the best way for people to follow you? Awesome. Thank you. I love that we're going to end it with these three very empowering questions. Number one, cannabis is here to serve humanity and it is teaching humanity how to serve ourselves. If the people lead, the leaders will follow. That is not blowing smoke. That is not an outdated comment to make. The reality is that our elected officials have got to hear from us and they want to hear from us. They can only make a priority on their limited legislative agendas of what their constituents are telling them to make a priority. And when they don't hear from their constituents that industrial hemp and regenerative agriculture is an issue, then they don't lead that way. So that's our job is to get engaged on a state level and a federal level. How can you do that? You can go to votehemp.com, click on the take action tab, and then click what can I do? Votehemp.com, take action. Another incredible website, normal.org slash act. Normal is N-O-R-M-L slash act. Incredible. Get involved. And then how can you follow me? My favorite thing to do in the world, what makes my heart sing, what I am happiest at now that my children are grown, is telling the story of industrial hemp. So I speak all over the country, North America, internationally, and at my website, hempbase.com. All of my speaking engagements are there and easy to see. A lot of the events that I speak at are completely free. Some are a small cost. I sometimes speak at these fancy pants conferences. Please hempbase.com. And of course, I can be followed on Facebook as Joy Beckerman. Joy, thanks again for joining me. Have a great time in Kentucky. Thank you so much, Patrick. Thank you for everything you do, brother. I'm wishing you everything wonderful and I can't wait for us to talk again. 